Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation about IP focused on the issues, challenges and stories relevant to those who create and manage intellectual property. In 2017, the UK Supreme Court's judgment of activists versus Eli Lilly created significant change to the way patent infringement is assessed in the UK by introducing a formal doctrine of equivalence. Four years on, Appleyardley's partners and patent attorneys Adam Tyndall and David Walsh and senior associate and patent attorney Chris Mason discuss the impact the Supreme Court's judgment has had on the outcomes of patent infringement hearings in the UK and how this has affected patent owners and third parties. Adam, David and Chris, welcome to the podcast. Chris, why don't you start by giving us the background to this discussion? Yes, thank you, Charlie. So today we want to talk about how we determine the scope of protection that's provided by a patent in the UK. And I think it'd be really helpful if we did look at the history before we get stuck into the present day discussion. I think we can probably start from the the pre-1980s. And before the 1980s, there was really more of an emphasis on literal interpretation of the wording that was used in claim features. And this position shifted rather in in 1982 with with the Katnick decision and this introduced the concept of purposive interpretation that is interpreting the claim features more in context we then saw the development of the improver or also known as protocol questions um, in the improver versus remington case in 1990 with mr justice hoffman as he was at that time and this was to help with the infringement assessment and then things really came to a head in the house of laws decision in Kieran Anjem in 2004, which is, of course, now renamed the Supreme Court, in which the now Lord Hoffman, he pulled back a bit from the application of the improver questions. And this finding overturned finding of infringement at first instance by who was then a Mr. Justice Neuberger. And this carries us toward the present day in 2017. And the Supreme Court decision in Actavis versus Eli Lilly. And in this decision, we find that we are now before a Lord Neuberger. And in this decision, Lord Neuberger found infringement. And he also introduced an explicit test for equivalence. The first real explicit test, I think, that the UK has seen. And it involved two limbs when assessing infringement. The first limb continued to apply the concept of purposive or or normal construction to the claims. But if no infringement was found through that limb, a second limb was now introduced, which used a form of the improver questions. Lord Neuberger reformulated them. And this reformulated version of the improver questions was applied as a second limb to, in Lord Neuberger's view, more thoroughly apply the requirements in the European Patent Convention to consider infringement by equivalence. And that takes us up towards the present day, really. And I think we should probably have a bit of a chat, David and Adam, if you'd like, from that point, and then maybe we can build up to the present day and go from there. Well, yes, Chris, thanks for that. I find it really interesting. And I don't know, you probably deliberately didn't include the facts of the Actavis Eli Lilly case which are probably of interest to those on the on the chemical side and less interesting to those on the mechanical and electronics side of the patent world. But very briefly, they had, in that case, an active anion, 
and the, the change over the claims was to change the cation from sodium to potassium. The interesting thing was that at the priority date, the skilled person wouldn't have known that potassium would be just as effective as the sodium salt. But in the new test, the time difference between the priority date and the discovery of the efficacy, if you like, of the potassium salt was swept away by Lloyd Neuberger. And this this is a big change, I think, in the chemical field because it means that merely not knowing at the priority date doesn't necessarily mean that you wouldn't infringe by equivalence. Did it feel like a reasonable observation decision at the time? I think as a practitioner, yes, it was because that was taken into account through patent drafting. As a good patent draftsman, you would take into account that you wanted fair protection for your client who was the patentee, and you would make sure you drafted to cover uh, various fallbacks that might be necessary, various amendments that might be necessary in view of the prior art. And the feeling was, I think, in large sections of the patent community that, you know, the draftsman hadn't built in the right fallbacks. That said, you know, Lloyd Norberg had a lot of sympathy, um, thought the EPO perhaps had been too harsh on added matter and, you know, become perhaps too formulaic. He, he was very dismissive of the EPO's added matter approach in that case. So we are where we are, and, and and the interesting thing is that that's the situation we have to live with. Whatever else it is, it obviously sets the standard, and it clearly wouldn't be overturned if you had a if you satisfied this test. And I think that we'll probably get onto it in more detail. But the same way part of the test is very interesting in that the potential infringement has to work in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about it from a mechanical point of view, and if you look at cases like the Excel source case where if you look at the claims and where part of the claim which helps to get the patent granted is just completely dismissed and you you read the claim and read through the case and think yeah it does seem that part of it having that feature there does seem kind of irrelevant to what's actually being achieved by the device but at the same time it's uh, you know when it comes to trying to decide going to advise somebody on whether they infringe or not it's when you can excise a whole limiting feature and the rest of the claim is a bit functional by the time you're finished with it. I don't know, it just casts massive doubt on it. I mean, I think it, sometimes people say it's, um, you know, with uh, the improver cases, we've been thinking around the edges in the mechanical field, uh, sort of feeling in the grey areas of where the scope might be for quite a while. But I think things have changed really quite a lot. If you can excise whole passages or if you can decide that whole features, well, that's just part of the common general knowledge, we won't worry about those. That makes it a lot a lot, lot harder to to advise, and I mean, I suppose it's it's good for patentees. I guess I feel quite uncomfortable about the whole thing. Yeah, no, I totally agree, Adam. It's become a hell of a lot more difficult to advise, and you have to bear in mind that there are different different areas of protection. And this was a pharmaceutical case where there was clearly a benefit from the active ingredient. In different fields, the inventions have a very different nature. For instance, you might have there's a lot of chemical composition patents, not just in, in the healthcare area, but in beauty care, in skincare, etc. There are a lot of industrial composition patents, for instance, paints or something of that type. And they may have something in, in them or perhaps a number of ingredients in them that give you a, a small technical benefit over the prior art. And, and someone may patent that. But at the same time, if you're in one of those fields, you might want to come up with a new formulation, say a new paint formulation, and you need to know that you've got freedom to operate. If you carry out a freedom to operate search, you perhaps have a number of hits of potential problem patents. And 
they're very difficult to dismiss them because you have to look at each of those close calls, if you like, where perhaps there's one variant or maybe two variants difference and assess what the inventive concept is for each of those so that you can clear the way for a client. And that can become incredibly burdensome. I think that's exacerbated by the nature of the chemical subject matter. It's, it's much more black box than mechanical. You know, you, you can see how a mechanical invention works pr- pretty quickly or relatively a lot more quickly at least. And I think that ties in with how close the patents can be. You can get probably more patents for chemical subject matter because it is black box. There's more scope for changes that would give you arguably surprising results. So maybe you get a higher number of patents with with less distance between them. So I think that's why the reformulation of the second equivalence question really stood out because you're giving the skilled person knowledge that the skilled person doesn't have it at the other side of the scale when it comes to assessing inventive step for example the skilled person doesn't have the knowledge that it works in the same way or or the way that things work if it's not taught in the in the disclosure but now when it comes to assessing infringement the skilled person does have the knowledge that it works in the same way so it just I think for me my gut feeling was that that stepped on the balance a little bit dangerously considering the way that that nature of chemical subject matter the black box nature and the way that that leads to a higher number of closer patents which means often when we're doing clearance work it's not unusual to get 50 100 patents of potential risk that you have to reach an opinion on and obviously now (laughs) it's significantly more time consuming to work our way through that list or if it's not more time consuming it could be the same level of time but it's going to be a significantly higher risk factor for the third party so this is something you've spent a lot of time thinking about chris has this affected the the way that you draft I think that's a really interesting question. And I'd say no, to be honest, because the gold standard is still to catch an infringer through normal construction. You very much want to avoid the uncertainty and the expense of having to argue equivalence because capturing an infringer by equivalence is probably going to require a lot of factual disclosure, witness, testimony and, and such. And it's not going to be a a quick or cheap outcome, perhaps. So no, very much as you were. And I think looking at the Actavius Eli Lee case, Eli Lee's patents, they had a single, well, they tested a single active, which had the disodium counter iron. So one example, essentially, they broadened that molecule that Pemetrex said to any antifolate. And they filed with that so at one end, they had the exceptionally broad antifolate definition, and that was supported by the single said disodium example. The priority filing was from the US. So I think, again, there's, and the US approach to added matter is very different and, and likewise interpretation. So I think, again, there's potentially some sympathy there about if you're drafting under the US practice, maybe you don't fully take into account the European practice. And that's, you know, that's a... That's an ongoing and, and long, <laughs> long-term discussion that a lot of practitioners have. But if that was being drafted in Europe, if I was drafting that application, you're screaming red flags there, really. There's just such a cavernous gap between the antifolate on the one hand and the single example. On the other hand, it would have just been a natural, it almost would have been a subconscious thing to do 
to building those fullbacks. And certainly the fullback they were missing, the Pemetrex had salt, which they tried to get through during prosecution in which the EPO wouldn't let them have because that language wasn't in, in the specification. So if that priority document had been drafted in Europe, we may never have had the Supreme Court decision because I think it's very likely that that missing fallback would have been incorporated in the drafting stage, uh, which obviously would have saved Eli Lilly probably uh, in the index harvest, I suppose, a, a, lot, a lot of money, although maybe this decision itself is advantageous to some patentees, no doubt. But so if you look at it that way, if you look at it well, could I have avoided having to catch them by equivalence? Yes, I could have avoided having to catch them by equivalence and it would have been by doing what we normally do. Adam, do you feel, I mean, Chris and I have discussed the impact of removing the the time barrier, if you like, in the second question, because in chemistry, until you know, uh, when you carry out the experiment, the outcome of the experiment tends to have an element of unpredictability about it. Does that apply? The sense I have is that wouldn't apply so strongly in the mechanical field, but I, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that, whether that is, is such a big shift in the mechanical field. I'm not saying it's never been an issue. I've just never noticed it being an issue. I think the mechanical being mechanical, that everybody assumes that you know they have a good feeling for, for how things fit together and how things work and what they you know by you know, it's easier to imagine what an alternative might be or it's easier to understand what might be what features might be less relevant what strikes me with looking at through some of the cases is that if the claims have been drafted in a way which had linked the features of the claims together in vertical better then maybe the scope of the claims would have ended up being narrower like say for example in the excel case there was the feature of the opening down the side of the ammunition bag which was deemed to not really have anything to do with the invention at all and yet it was in the claim and it's and you look at the claim and it, there is no link between that feature and the functional part of the claim with no disrespect to whoever drafted it in fact they, they really did the the client a favor because they broadened the scope of the claim by not really linking those two features together so i think it people bring their own understanding to it and people feel a bit there's there's a freer interpretation of what things mean and how things fit together and i'm not sure that's necessarily fair but it does seem to be what does seem to be what happens one of the key points and this has come out hasn't it in one of the recent decisions is you have to be careful if you disclose different embodiments or different potential features in the description but then choose to claim only one of them then that's starting to come out i think through the jurisprudence that you have difficulty arguing that you've got an equivalent that second unclaimed feature should be encompassed by equivalence it's been really interesting hasn't it to see how the case law has developed since Actavis, you know, when we looked at the questions as they reformulated, we talked a bit about question two, but I think we shouldn't overlook question one. In improver questions, it was, does a variant have a material effect on the way the invention works? And Lord Neuberger reformulated that to, does the variant achieve substantially the same result in substantially the same way as the invention? And then helpfully tagged on, i.e. the inventive concept revealed by the patents so maybe you could paraphrase that too does the variant achieve substantially the same result in substantially the same way as the inventive concept of the patent so immediately you lock onto the inventive concept what what is the inventive concept how how on earth do you define that inventive concept and obviously we have we had the Actavis decision in front of us and we could see that the claims required sodium the infringing variant was potassium 
And there's there's no way that normal interpretation could interpret sodium to be potassium as, as Lord Neuberger found in the judgment. But he found that under this new equivalence test, that potassium was equivalent to sodium. So, you know, to, to be perfectly honest, I think that was quite a scary moment for a lot of practitioners because suddenly we are cast adrift from the claims somewhat. And you're thinking, well, if if sodium covers potassium, where do we stop? And then so you start to trying to work out the the limits of this new test and fixate, I think, on, on the inventive concept. How do we define this inventive concept? And I think initially, at least, we were devoid of case law, really, as to as to how to really go about that, apart from the example given in Actavis. But I think subsequently, we've seen a good amount of case law come out, and in particular, the, the Akibia decision in April 2020, I think, was a very thoroughly reasoned decision from Lord Justice Arnold at, at the time. I sort of searched in my memory... Maybe David or Chris, you know the answer to this. So when they're defining what's the inventive concept, are they is it always drawn from you know, some turn of phrase or paragraph that's in the patent specification? Or is it in light of, you know, business need or you know, how how does it get framed in cases or is there just a, a smurge of different approaches taken to defining what the inventive concept is? Well, I think the patentee defines it so it doesn't include the variant, so that doesn't matter. And the infringer defines it so it does include the variant, so it's very important. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But is that based on what's in the written in the patent application itself, or is that based on you know other evidence that's supplied after? Yeah, I mean, as it says, I think actually Lloyd Norberg said it. It was it's what's revealed by the patent, isn't it? But that obviously then takes into account what's happened in terms of the patent being amended. And again, I think in Akibia that was important because, as Chris said, we were a little bit thrown because sometimes the patent sets out quite a broad concept of the invention in in the introductory portion or at some other point in the description. And then the patent's been narrowed in, in prosecution and there's a narrower claim. So does the broad concept still apply? But I think we've had some comfort from more recent cases that Oh, no, it has to be reinterpreted if you've amended the claims. I think in many ways, Akibia was the perfect counterbalance to Actavis. We saw an alternative set of facts in which the broader scope of the invention was not valid in light of the prior art and potentially um, other issues such as sufficiency, which, which wasn't necessarily the case in Akibia. And so I think that helped to narrow down the definition of the of the inventive concepts. The patentee had a few stabs at it, but in the end, Lord Justice Arnold held them to the specific molecular structure that was defined in the claim, which is is as narrow as you could get, really, and for the definition of the inventive concept, and that, that put them in an impossible position, really, to prove infringement on the facts. So I think if you had Actavis at one end with the facts of that case, where the, the broader concept of the invention was probably novel and inventive and and so the, the judge in that case has, has, has expanded the inventive concepts toward that we're looking at akibia and you've got a narrow claim um, and you've got petitions from the patentee that a broader inventive concept should be should be granted but there are issues with that broader concept there are validity issues with that broader concept and there's been pushback there by by the judge back toward the claim and, and leading to a finding of, of non-infringement. So in my mind, and I think David, you might be of a similar mind, it was a good counterbalance of circumstances to help us balance out the Actavis decision a little bit more. And it's been really interesting to see that the subsequent case law following Akibia, and it's still a relatively small sample size, I suppose, but 
if we look at the cases pre-Akibia, for those cases that found no infringement with normal construction, all eight subsequently found infringement by equivalence. And if we look at the cases post-Akibia, those cases that found no infringement by normal construction, there's around eight and six of those eight found no infringement by equivalence, only two out of eight post-Akibia and eight out of eight pre-Akibia. So again, small sample size, we mustn't read into it too much, but I think it it's certainly worth noting that that counterbalance decision has potentially had a quite a significant effect on subsequent case laws. Where are we if we if we step back? Where was the bigger picture? I think I think patentees can take some comfort still that you know the courts will try to give them justice in the sense that if someone just comes along with what's clearly an equivalent and maybe the claims didn't quite cover it, then the equivalence case law potentially comes to their assistance in terms of looking at it from the point of view of freedom to operate. I think it is a game changer, irrespective of the greater clarity that's coming from the courts because the greater clarity comes from when you're looking in detail at a specific patent and whether first of all assessing the inventive concept and then assessing whether your variant is an equivalent but you've got to get to that point first and that's I think become a lot harder because you've got equivalents are much more likely to arise I think you have a much harder job getting to the patents that are potentially a problem from a freedom to operate point of view and I don't think that's greatly changed by the more recent cases i think once you've got to that point i think the more recent cases are giving you a lot of clarity on what is and isn't infringement and as i said at the outset i think it's good for patentees in the sense that you're not necessarily going to be tied to your claims as strictly as as you perhaps were before Actavis. so i think that's a more just outcome there's been a lot of discussion as to how to invite the right generality of the inventive concept. You know, is it purely the benefit it achieves? There's been quite a few cases now where they've kind of reined the claimant in and said, well, it's no good just talking about the benefit that you've got. We've got to discuss the way you got that benefit. And then there's, so there's been a real focus, I think, especially this year in case law, having a look at the way that the invention has achieved that benefit. And I think that's really doing what we've talked about. It's looking at the contribution that the patent has made to the art and reining in the equivalent scope to the way in which the patent has taught the skilled person to achieve that benefit. My view is it's going in the right direction. I think it's going in the direction that we thought it would. It's good to see. Adam, David and Chris, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.